Romans 12, verses 17 through 21 is our text this morning. And the title of today's message is Overcoming Evil. So let me read this morning as we continue our series here in Romans. Starting with verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, doing, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Church, let us pray. Well, Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that your word is living and it's active, sharper than a double two-edged sword. Lord, I thank you for that because this morning we come in different states. Some of us perhaps feeling a little lethargic, maybe complacent. Some of us maybe even feeling a little numb this morning. Lord, we ask that you would do your work through your word, that you would stir us this morning, that you would draw our affections to you this morning, that you would arrest our attention this morning, that you would stir us, that you would move us, that you would convict us where need be. But Lord, we also ask that you would pour faith into our hearts through your Holy Spirit this morning. Faith to believe what we've read, but not just that, to put it into action as well, we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, church, as we begin this morning, I just want to start off with a confession. I don't particularly like these verses in the flesh. They agitate me. They make me feel uneasy. There is a fear of God this morning as I get up before you and preach this text. You see, it's not that I I don't believe this is the word of God. Oh, I believe it is. It's not that these words that I just read, Romans 12, aren't godly. The issue is this. They're too godly. (laughs) They're impossible to obey impossible to obey. Right along with the lines from last week, bless those who persecute you, verse 14. But don't get me wrong. I really like how this section of scripture begins. We could say it begins in one sense in verse 9, as Al taught us last week. When we hear the words, let your love be genuine, abhor, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. See, in my mind, I think, I got that. 
I got that. Yeah? Hate. What is evil? Hold fast what is good. It's not the hating and the holding on to. It's the loving and letting go as pertains to our enemies or our perceived enemies. You see, once again, friends, this morning, we're looking at Romans 12. And we're taking a look at what genuine love looks like as a Christian. If we looked at last week, the genuine $100 bill of Christian love. That was Al's great example or illustration. If that were the case, today we are looking at the genuine $100,000 bill of genuine enemy love. Ever heard of it? Ever seen it? I doubt it. Well, this bill was printed and minted in 1934. You'll see right there in that series. And on this bill is a portrait of President Woodrow Wilson. This bill also went out of circulation in 1969. It's the rarest of bills. It's the most valuable of bills. And as Christians, this is the bill that we must have in circulation. We can't manufacture it, but we can share it and we can pass it on. It's a supernatural, it's a radical love that has distinguished Christians throughout the centuries and has conquered more hearts and more souls than any sword, any armories, any ammunitions, or any armies that the world could put together or ever produce. And nowhere is this radical love seen more than in the way we deal with our enemies, the way in which we deal with evil, even evil done to us. So our question is this, church, what does this genuine love look like in the face of evil? Let's begin with where our passage begins this morning, with verse 17 and verse 18. And these two verses can be summarized by our very first point. Give thought. Give thought. Let me read again verses 17 and 18 for us. We read this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, of all, not just God, but all people, including non-Christians. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Right from the beginning, we have an implicit implicit acknowledgement that conflict is inevitable. There is an embedded assumption here that Christians will be in conflict with the world. We will encounter evil. But I probably didn't need to tell you that, did I? If you've been living for a few minutes, you know this is the case. But sometimes it's just good to hear again, isn't it? It's inevitable. It's good to hear, just like it's good to hear the words of 1 Peter 4.12. Let me just read them to you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. I love this next phrase. As though something strange were happening to you. 
church conflict and confrontation with evil is not strange. It is common. It is common in a fallen world of sin. Yet that doesn't mean we have license or liberty to jump on in and join the fray. We are called to refrain from evil, from repaying evil with evil. But we're called to do more than that as well. You see, genuine love goes beyond just patiently enduring evil. No, genuine love of this type moves us towards our enemies in love, not away from them. We are told here in verse 17 to give thought. This is more than just a mental exercise, okay? What's implied here is planning and action. The phrase, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, could literally be translated, providing right things before all men. To give thought is to provide. It is to consider in advance. It is to think beforehand about what is honorable and what is right in the sight of all. And do it. Not just because it's morally right, yes, but to do what is right in the eyes of all men. In other words, that which may be approved and recognized as good, even by non-Christians, even by those who are doing you evil. We as Christians must be seen as practicing good without compromising our biblical convictions and ethics. You see, the early church, they could not bow down to Caesar. They could not engage in emperor worship. Yet, they took care of the very poor which Caesar exploited. And they did it in such a way that even the emperor had to recognize and see the good they were doing. Oh, may that be us as a church. May that be us as a church as we face today increased hostility regarding our convictions on biblical marriage. May we learn to outlove the very ones who are or will call us intolerant bigots because we believe that Bible is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. But not just that. May we tangibly care for those who are going to suffer because of the breakdown of marriage and family, which they have championed. May we be the ones first to care and to love them. Let's bring it down even more personally. Oh, may we individually speak forgiveness and show kindness to the very ones who have slandered us or betrayed our trust. And may we do good in such a way that they cannot deny it. This means giving prayer and much thought to each situation. So much so that we can read in verse 18 these words, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You can read that verse and say, by God's grace, that I have done. See, I, 
Not that I can own the outcome. I can't own the outcome of any conflict. But I can own my part. My role to give thought to what is honorable and what is right. And to do it as far as it depends on me. But that still leaves us. That still leaves us this morning with a big million dollar question. Or the big $100,000 bill question right here. How can we possibly do this? How is it possible to respond with grace and love and kindness in the face of evil? Now we're approaching the answer. Oh, this is key, church. Verse 19. You see, verses 17 and 19 are the brackets of this passage this morning. This scripture is centered in verse 19. Another way to put it is this. If verses 17, the first verse, and verse 21 is the last verse, the two pieces of bread and a sandwich, verse 19 is the peanut butter and jelly that makes it stick together. Right here, verse 19. 19. You get verse 19, you get the gospel. The good news of God's salvation and judgment. And you get the gospel, you will not hate nor chafe at these words, but you will increasingly learn to live them. And that leads to the second point. The first one was give thought. The second is give place. Give place. Give place to what? Give place to the wrath of God. Verse 19. We read, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now I know in your ESV, it reads, leave it to the wrath of God. But literally this verse reads in the original Greek, giving place to wrath or giving over place to wrath. There is something we must give. There is something we must must give up if we're ever, ever going to follow these commands. We are called to give up our desires, our personal need to get even, to enact justice, to avenge ourselves. And we are to give place in our hearts for God to do that which he and he alone can rightfully do. And that's avenge evil and execute his perfect justice. Oh, I love and I need to hear the words of 1 Peter 2.23. Just hear them. Speaking of Jesus. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We can often stop there in the verse, but there's an important second part that you need to hear. But continued entrusting himself to him. That's God the Father who judges justly. God will execute his perfect justice. God, in doing so, will avenge evil. This avenging may come partially through the state or the human rulers which God has put in place to execute justice and to carry out his wrath on the wrongdoer. We're going to read about that in Romans 13 coming up. But both you and I know no human ruler nor state 
nor court of law can bring complete justice or punishment on wrongdoing. That and that alone will only and finally be experienced and expressed when Christ returns and executes his perfect righteous judgment. But I want you to hear this. This is important. The desire for the repaying and judgment of evil is not wrong. Hear it again. The repayment and judging of evil, the desire for that is not wrong. It's just that. It is God's prerogative, not ours. God alone is the rightful judge and executioner, not us. Why is that so? Because our sin, all sin and evil is primarily an offense against God. And he is the one who has the right to deal with it. Oh, and he will, and he has. Then why is it so difficult to heed these words of this text? Could it be because we are so selfish or self-righteous? Notice how Paul addresses the Roman Christians in this verse, verse 19. He starts out with this curious word, beloved. It's if Paul, God, is reminding the Roman Christians of the grace which they have received, that they have been welcomed into the family of God, despite the fact that they were once enemies of God, and not only doing evil, but approving of those who did it as well. I think secondly as well, there's another reason which I often find operating in my own life, whether I verbally articulate it or not. And it's this, to quote D.A. Carson. The command of enemy love is very hard, not only because it flies in the face of our built-in selfishness or self-righteousness, but also because it seems to be terribly unfair, terribly unjust. Have you ever thought this way? If I do not confront and repay this particular evil, who will? Doesn't someone need to show them that what they did was wrong and there are consequences for such behavior? If evil is left unchecked, or worse, if evil is perceived to be rewarded by kindness, Am I not just encouraging such behavior? Surely, that's not right. And after all, if they've never apologized, if they've never done anything to right the wrong, how do I just let it go? How? How can I do that? Well, friends, you and I can let it go. This doesn't mean that you or I never confront personal or societal evil. It does not mean that we never report crimes to the proper authorities. We do. But what it means is this. That you and I do not have to be the judge of every injustice done to you or to me or that is done in the world. Why? Because no evil, no evil will go unpunished. 
Not one single morsel, not one single strand, not one single moment of evil will ever, ever go unpunished. Either that sin was paid for in Christ or it will be paid by the offender in hell. It's one or the other. That's the only question left. That's the only drama left. Who's going to pay? That's it. The question of God's justice has already been settled at the cross once and for all. God is love and God is just. And God's love does not cancel out. God's just. And God is just. It's at the cross where God has most clearly revealed his holy justice and his commitment to it at the very expense of executing his son for the sins of his people. And thus, at one and the same time, demonstrating his unfathomable love and mercy to each and every one of us who believe. But for those who don't, but for those who do not place their saving trust in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, there will be vengeance. And the suffering of God's people will be avenged on God's enemies by his terrible wrath. Listen carefully as we get a peek into the sounds and dialogue of heaven given to us in the book of Revelation. We're going to put it on the screen for you. Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. We read the following words. This is a peek now into heaven. Oh, when he, that's the Lamb of God, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What do you hear when we get this peak or glimpse into heaven? There's no rebuke for the saints wanting and desiring vengeance. No, there's a crying out for justice, which the martyrs know belongs to God and God alone, and whom will carry it out when the time is right. Friends, hear it again. Repayment and judgment of evil is not wrong in itself. In fact, it's righteous. It's just wrong for you and I as Christians. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is a promise. It's a promise. Do you trust him? But Corey, I got a real anger problem. I just blow up. I just react when I or others that I love are mistreated. Yeah. You may have an anger problem. But I may suggest that you may have a problem which is greater than that. It's a trust problem. Do you trust the judge 
or maybe like you, you find that he's a little too slow for you in executing his judgments. I mean, he isn't, nor was he slow when it came to you, when applied to you, when dealing with you. Actually, he's quite patient with you, so much so that you love to quote the verse, God is abounding in steadfast love. And he's slow to anger. Oh, you love that refrain when it's applied to you. You just don't like it when it's applied to your enemies. When in your mind, justice is delayed. When you are told, like the martyrs in heaven, rest a little while longer. Now we're back to self-righteousness, aren't we? Oh, what a little web of sin that we can spin. I include myself in that. Church, give place. Give place in your heart for the wrath of God. Leave it to God. Then and only then will you be free. Free to truly give. Give what? Whatever your enemies may need. Whatever may truly bless them or do good to them. That leads to the next point. Give thought, give place, and give. Now you notice there's a blank there. I can't fill it in for you. But I trust God will show you what it means and what you are to give to your enemies. To give what would bless them. To give according to their needs. Let's read verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You see, the point is not that we're merely to give food or drink to our enemy. It's that we bless them by meeting their real needs. Thus fulfilling, going back to verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. But how do we discern our enemy's needs? That goes back to the first point, doesn't it? We give thought and we give place for God's wrath and vengeance. So now we are free, free in our heart to give according to their needs. I once read a story, I believe it's retold by James Boyce, of a Christian in South China who had a rice field on a hill. To quote, during the growing season, he used a hand-worked water wheel to lift water from the irrigation stream that ran by the base of the hill to his field. His neighbor had two fields below his. And one night, he made a hole in the dividing wall and drained out all the Christian's water to fill up his own two fields. The brother was distressed, but he laboriously pumped water up into his own field only to have the act of stealing repeated three or four times. At last, he consulted his Christian brothers. What shall I do? He asked. I have tried to be patient and not to retaliate. The Christian prayed. And then one of them replied, 
if we are only to try to do the right thing, i.e. be patient and not retaliate. Surely we are very poor Christians, he said. We have to do something more than what is right. The Christian farmer was so impressed with this advice. He should have been. It's Romans 12, what we're studying today. So the next day he went out and first pumped water for the two fields below his. And then after that, worked throughout the afternoon to fill his own field. And from that day on, the water stayed in his own field. Church, we must do more than what is right and simply not retaliating in the face of evil. We are called to do good, to bless. If, you're hung, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him water. Give him something to drink. Much as the poor Christian brother in China exhibited. But what does it mean in doing so? Quote, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That may be a little less clear for us, is it not? Well, there are at least two main thoughts as to what this may mean. Number one, it could mean that we are to do good to our enemies, which will in turn drive them to be ashamed of their behavior and their action vis-a-vis yours, and thus repent. It could mean that. In fact, that's what happened to the enemy rice farmer in China. The story goes on that he repented and was transformed. However, in the Old Testament, where we see this reference to burning coals, it consistently symbolizes either God's anger or God's punishment. As we read in Psalm, 1, excuse me, Psalm 11, verses 5 and 6. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind, shall be the portion of their cup. Thus, the second way we can interpret this phrase, heap burning coals on his head, is thus as stated in the ESV study Bible. Christians are to do good to wrongdoers, recognizing that God will punish them on the last day if they do not repent. Although I believe this latter interpretation is probably the best interpretation given the textual considerations. I'm not sure these two interpretations are that far off in terms of how this functions in reality and in our lives. See, it seems that in Scripture, the good works of the gospel, the good works that we're to do, will produce one or the other result. Either repentance and eternal life or a hardness of heart and eternal destruction. It's one or the other. In fact, the Apostle Paul refers to his own ministry, his own message, his own sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians 2.16, he refers to it as a fragrance of life, a fragrance of life to those who have placed their saving faith in Christ Jesus. Or, a fragrance of death, i.e. burning coals on flesh to those who don't, his enemies. The point is this. God 
will use our good works done in the face of injustice to either, number one, lead our enemies to repentance as they see God's righteousness through our supernatural works in kindness. Or, number two, it will only serve to confirm their hardness of heart and their eternal punishment and condemnation should they not repent. It's our actions, it's the good done towards our enemies that can drive this point home and that can preach the gospel. The gospel of salvation and judgment to our enemies. And that brings us to the last verse and really the climax climax of this passage, verse 21. We read the following. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The sum of it all is this. As Christians, we are called, church, to overcome evil with good. In one sense, what we've been talking about for the last 30 or so minutes, in summary form, evil can only overcome us if it makes us use evil ourselves. That is, if we attempt to overcome evil with evil. Rather, we are called to overcome evil with good. This past week, I was reading the beginning of the book of Revelation, and I was really doing so to better understand how God evaluates his church, his people. And it's interesting. In Revelation 2 and 3, we get a glimpse of God's you could say test score or comments as he addresses the seven churches in Revelation. Mind you, these are real churches, all situated in today, modern day Turkey. They may have had different opponents or enemies by name. But you know what? The pressures they faced, the evils they faced were much the same pressures and temptations that we face today. And what struck me as I read was this. Number one, it was God's Repeated acknowledgement and commendation of those who had patiently endured evil. But what also struck me was this. God was challenging and is challenging through these scriptures the church to go beyond patient endurance to overcoming, overcoming evil with good. To the church in Ephesus, God says the following in Revelation 2, starting with verse 3 on the screen. He says this. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent, and catch this, and do the works you did at first. And hear this promise, verse 7b. To the one who conquers, you know what? That word translated as conquers, same word used in Romans 12, 21, overcomes. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
We've been through a lot as a church, haven't we, the past 17 years? Any church has. There's no need to rehearse that. I think we can say as a church that we have patiently endured. And I believe there is commendation for many of you who have been with us throughout all these years for the way you have persevered. Yes, even those who are weary. But there's another message to be heard here as well. It's a message that promises life and flourishing to all who apply it. It's this. Remember your first love. Your love for God and one another. And do the works you once did or are called to do. Overcome. Overcome evil with good. It's not enough that you or I, that we just patiently endure. God is calling us to overcome evil with good. And evil cannot be overcome, it can only be overcome, excuse me, by something that which is wholly different than itself, that which is indeed supernatural. It's a supernatural love and a supernatural grace. Oh, I can't manufacture it. I can't mint it. You can't manufacture this love. You can't mint it. But God gives it. The chairman of the Federal Reserve intends for us to use it. And it's the currency of love that issues from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who patiently endured unspeakable evil on the cross. But he didn't just endure evil. He overcame evil by reconciling his enemies, that's you and me, to himself. And triumphing over the evil powers and authorities so that they, yes, could not accuse God of injustice or us of unrighteousness. Christ triumphed over his enemies at the cross. Colossians 2.15 He triumphed over evil. He overcame the most heinous of evil by the greatest act of love and good ever known to man on the cross. And God is now calling us to share in this triumph through his divine supernatural love given to us by the Holy Spirit. This word overcome, it's a war term. It comes right off the battlefield. To quote Jay Adams, I love this, it has all the smell of smoke and sweat and blood and anguish attached to it. To overcome is a battle. We have a choice. Be vanquished or be victor. To be overcome or to overcome. God isn't calling us just to live as Christians a defensive life, but a life lived on the offensive to overcome. Let me illustrate. Last week, I returned from the country of Ireland, a wonderful visit. While there, my mom and I had the opportunity to take a tour of a castle. I once thought it would be pretty cool, just for a little bit, you know, to live in an old castle, to give it a try. Well, my opinion quickly changed. Castles are made for defense. See, there was only one small entrance into the castle to minimize invasion. There was a, it was fascinating, there was a a small hole in the adjacent room so they could shoot arrows through anyone, any unwelcome guest who would come through that front door. Above the front door, there were the soldiers' barracks, and there was a big hole in the floor so they could dump tar on any unwelcome intruder. There was just one staircase in this castle. It was narrow, it was steep, and it was grossly uneven. 
Why? To trip up any of those who would come attack. Castles are made for defense. There were no sizable windows in the castle until you got to the very top. Why? So the inhabitants would be safe from any fiery darts or arrows. The castle was one big, dark, unhealthy fortress. It was no place to live. It was built for defense. Church, we are not built for defense. Palm Vista was not built for defense. We are built for offense. And sometimes I think we get that reversed. I have felt it in my soul lately. God did not create us to live in stone, walled fortresses or castles, to merely hold on and patiently endure until our king returns. No, when he created us, he created us to move, to charge, to overcome. When the word of God says in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, I think many of us have a wrong mental picture. We picture hell coming to us and charging us with gates. As if hell is charging with one gate and one each hand as we seek protection in the fortress. That's ridiculous. No one charges with gates. Gates are built to protect. And what is being said is this. It's the overall picture of scripture, I believe. That we are to charge and overcome the gates of hell which cannot and will not be able to withstand the force of God's mighty love and deeds. To us today, including myself, I believe God is saying, get out of the fortress, get out of the foxhole, and charge your enemies with an arsenal of good works. Don't play the victim, church play the victor. It's time. He's called us to overcome. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are sobered by these words. I think each in our own way right now, perhaps feel a little uneasy, perhaps very aware that we in ourselves, in our own strength, cannot do what you just asked. That by the grace of God, may you teach us, may you tutor us, may you empower us, may you strengthen us, and may you forgive us when we fail. But Lord, may we turn it for to fail to fail trying, loving our enemies to our last breath, of showing your supernatural grace and love, the very love which we have received. It's only that which we can give. We have nothing else to give. We are bankrupt apart from you. Oh, Lord, pour out your love into our hearts now. And as we sing of your love, may that love fill us and may it animate us, may, may it move us to do the very works which you have prepared before the foundation of this earth for us to walk in, to display your love and your glory to the world we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.